The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Recent Advances in the Management of Depressive Disorders, Preparing for a Shift in the Treatment Paradigm, featuring Dr. Anita H. Clayton from the University of Virginia School of Medicine in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Dr. Jennifer L. Payne from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AFZ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to our program, Recent Advances in the Management of Depressive Disorders, Preparing for a Shift in the Treatment Paradigm. I'm Dr. Anita Clayton, and I'm joined today with Dr. Jennifer Payne. We're both professors in the Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for having me. Major depressive disorder is common, costly, and disabling, with 12-month prevalence rates of 10% and lifetime prevalence rates of 21%. There are huge direct and indirect costs of over $200 billion annually, and it is a leading cause of disability throughout the world. It impacts on role functioning, social relationships, and quality of life, and is associated with significant medical comorbidities. Postpartum depression is actually the most common complication of giving birth. Postpartum symptoms occur in up to 13% of all live births in the United States in the general population. However, women with a history of postpartum depression are much more likely to experience postpartum depression with other births. Untreated postpartum depression increases the risk of, of behaviors that can affect the pregnancy as well as the mother, including suicide, relationship difficulties, addictive behaviors, and neglectful parenting behaviors. In addition, when infants are exposed to a mother who is depressed in the postpartum time period, they are more likely to have lower IQ and slower language developments and to experience the later development of behavioral and psychiatric disturbances. Unfortunately, there are numerous unmet needs in the conventional treatments for depression. Limitations include with psychotherapy, the fact that it needs to be ongoing, time-intensive, and labor-intensive, and often expensive, and the response to treatment is delayed. With the common antidepressants like SSRIs and SNRIs, you also have a th slow therapeutic response, and unfortunately, response and remission rates are suboptimal. And there are a lot of significant adverse effects that are associated with these treatments, like sexual dysfunction, weight gain, and sleep disruption. So Anita, let's talk about our first patient case, Usma. Usma is a 27-year-old married woman who recently gave birth to her second son. She works as the director of a local art museum and her first son is three years old. She has a history of a major depressive episode at the age of 18 that responded to fluoxetine and a history of postpartum depression after the birth of her first son. That depression, though significant, was not treated for six months and Usma felt that she had difficulty bonding with her son, though this has resolved by now. She was again treated with fluoxetine, and though she recovered, she did not fully recover until three months after starting treatment. She presents now to her psychiatrist with low mood, crying spells, difficulty sleeping, significant anxiety about the health of the baby, and intermittent thoughts that her family would be better off without her. 
She also has thoughts that she's a bad mother and that she was not meant to have children. She stopped the fluoxetine for pregnancy and is not currently taking any medications. An Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, or EPDS score, was 23. So, Jen, do you think discontinuation of the fluoxetine for the pregnancy led to recurrence of depressive symptoms? I think it's highly likely. So we know that when women stop their antidepressants for pregnancy, there's about a 70% relapse rate with depression either during pregnancy or in the postpartum time period. Women can actually take medications during pregnancy, but many are uncomfortable doing so and will discontinue for pregnancy. And this leads to a high relapse rate um, both during pregnancy and postpartum. And the unfortunate thing is that the baby is then exposed to the depression and often a second medication. Our second patient case is Sarah. Sarah is a 40-year-old woman who has had several major depressive episodes since high school, including one after the birth of her now 19-year-old daughter. She did not receive antidepressant therapy until five years ago, at which time she received paroxetine and then duloxetine. And she was taking bupropion XL for 50 milligrams a day, buspirone 30 milligrams twice daily, and levothyroxine 137 micrograms daily when her symptoms increased 18 months ago. She reports feeling down, depressed, and lethargic, and finds it difficult to initiate and complete tasks. She's been attending classes, but took a leave for medical reasons prior to starting nursing school due to feeling like she was in a fog, being easily distracted, feeling inadequate and like a failure, and significant fatigue, which she relates to her sleep being broken by three hours each night. She's overeating what she calls comfort food, feels tense and anxious, and has lost interest in most activities. Her PHQ-9 score was 18, scoring two or three for all items except bradykinesia hyperactivity and being better off dead. So Anita, I have two questions. Um, Why did she only receive treatment five years ago? She's a little bit granola and was thinking maybe she didn't need medications. She's had brief encounters with regard to psychotherapy prior, but no consistent therapy and not CBT. Okay, and, and she's taken several different antidepressants. Did she have a response to those medications and then lose it, or, or was she intolerant of the other medications? So the paroxetine and the duloxetine were serial monotherapy, and she really didn't have a, an efficacious response. I don't know what the dose was, but obviously she was started then on bupropion, increased to really its maximum, and then had an augmenting strategy added. And she was also found to be hypothyroid, but that didn't make a difference in terms of depressive symptoms. Nothing specific happened 18 months ago that you might have thought would be a situational stressor leading to depression. So it sounds like she is not getting optimal responses uh, so far. Correct. So let's talk about new mechanisms of action potentially valuable in the treatment of depression. Sure. So let's let's talk about the role of GABA in the neurobiology of depression. So the GABA system is the major inhibitory signaling pathway of the brain and, and the central nervous system. And there's both direct and indirect evidence that the GABA system plays a role in the development of depression. 
and you can see them there on that slide. In addition, GABA plays a prominent role in controlling the HPA axis, which regulates stress. And we know that stress is frequently a, a trigger for a depressive episode. And, and as you can see here, decreased GABA signaling in the anterior cingulate cortex is associated with an abnormal stress response. And the thinking is that this may lead to depression in susceptible individuals. So GABA is a neuroactive steroid. And of course, it has a binding site on the GABA-A receptor. If you look here to the left, you can see the synaptic binding sites for GABA and neuroactive steroid effects at extrasynaptic binding sites. Benzodiazepines are binding at the synaptic receptors and when that happens, we see a change in the configuration of the ionophore. There are five subunits that can make that change, and that leads to influx of ions. The benzodiazepines don't bind to the extrasynaptic binding sites, but neuroactive steroids over here on the right do bind to those sites. That, in fact, leads to tonic function or sustained kind of effects at maintaining the open ionophore and therefore inhibition. Whereas benzodiazepine binding sites really only have very short-term phasic effects. So let's turn now to the role of allopregnanolone in the pathophysiology of postpartum depression. When a woman is pregnant, there are a number of hormones that rise chronically throughout pregnancy and then fall precipitously at the time of birth. These include estrogen and progesterone, but just as important, it includes allopregnanolone. And it's thought that this rise in allopregnanolone levels actually causes the, the GABA receptors to downregulate some of their subunits and that means that once a woman has gone through delivery and birth, that she may be extra sensitive to the low levels of allopregnanolone that are experienced after delivery. So let's look at some of the evidence of the clinical impact of neuroactive steroids in MDD and PPD. Right, so we'll start with brexanolone. And brexanolone is a synthetic version of allopregnanolone that is administered through the IV. It is the first FDA-approved treatment for postpartum depression, and it's a 60-hour infusion over two and a half days at either 60 or 90 micrograms per kilogram per hour. It must be administered in a supervised or inpatient setting, and it has a very rapid onset of action and a sustained remission over the course of at least the next 30 days. Importantly, there's a boxed warning for excessive sedation and sudden loss of consciousness. And this is why it needs to be administered on an inpatient setting because the patient needs to be monitored for a loss of consciousness. Patients also need to be monitored for hypoxia using a continuous pulse ox equipped with an alarm. Because of the risks of excessive sedation, brexanolone is only available through a restricted program under REMS, and the patient has to be registered for the REMS program before brexanolone can be administered. This is a schematic describing the hummingbird trials. There were three trials looking at brexanolone in the treatment of postpartum depression. There was study A, had a HAMD of at least 26, as did study B, 
and study C, they studied more moderate cases of postpartum depression, and the HAMD could be between 20 and 25. Hour 60 was the primary endpoint of whether someone had a remission or a response to the treatment. They also had a seven-day follow-up and a 30-day follow-up. What you can see here is that the response to brexanolone is very quick. So uh, in this graph, time is in days. Um, and so by day three of the infusion, there was a significant decrease in the HAMD score as compared to placebo. And at day three, the HAMD for placebo had decreased by about 12.8 points, whereas the HAMD for brexanolone had decreased by 17 points. And interestingly, this is unlike ketamine, um, a sustained response. So at day 30, the differences between placebo and brexanolone remained. This uh, shows you the um, HAMD response and remission rates. On the left is the response rates, and you'll see that the response rates throughout um, the 30 days after receiving brexanolone really ranged um, in the 60 to 70% range. And the remission rate ranged from about 40 to 50%. Um, these are really highly significant figures. Most antidepressant trials show remission rates at about 25 to 30% uh, as a comparison. There were adverse reactions. There were the expected subconsciousness and being over sedated, along with feeling dizzy or presyncope or vertigo. A few people had other types of adverse reactions, but we think the most common side effects really have to do with being sleepy and loss of consciousness. So let's revisit um, patient case number one, asthma. Usma and her psychiatrist decided to try brexanolone and searched for a local setting that could administer it. Usma was admitted for three days at a local hospital for the infusion after insurance approved the admission and plan. Usma received brexanolone and tolerated the maximum of the step dosing schedule with some mild sedation. Her EPDS score decreased to 15 after 24 hours, 9 after 48 hours, and by the end of the infusion it was a 4. She was discharged home with a follow-up appointment the following week with her psychiatrist who administered the EPDS, which was scored at a 6. Usma reported feeling much improved and denied feelings of hopelessness, passive death wishes, and negative thoughts about herself as a mother. She also felt bonded to her new son, and this attachment was obvious during the interview. Usma and her psychiatrist decided not to start fluoxetine until Usma either began to feel worse or was done breastfeeding. So, Jen, what other factors led you to not restart fluoxetine for the PPD and instead go to brexanolone? Well, I think the, that there were a couple. The first was um, during her first postpartum depression, it took her a long time to respond to the fluoxetine. It took another three months. And by that point, her son was nine months old and she um, was still struggling to feel bonded to, to her son. Um, and so I was concerned that we would have another round of that uh, this time. Um, also, brexanolone was available locally, um, and so it was an option. And her EPDS score was pretty significantly high, and so I felt that she qualified for the brexanolone treatment. Did her passive thoughts of death influence you at all? That's a very good point, absolutely. And I think what was just as concerning, if not more so, was her thoughts 
that um, she was not meant to be a mother. Um, she was not delusional, but I felt like she was moving down the pathway of becoming convinced that um, she was not uh, good for her family. And I was worried that she would act on those thoughts. And was she breastfeeding? And if so, how long did you pause it or have her pump and dump? So uh, we did pause it during the infusion and we instructed her to pump and dump uh, for four days as, as is recommended. Um, I did not follow up on whether she did that or not, um, but she's a pretty conscientious patient, so she probably did. So now I'd like to talk about Zoranolone, which is an oral allopregnanolone analog, and it's being evaluated in the treatment of postpartum depression and major depressive disorder. This is the general Zoranolone clinical trial design for a PPD in the three studies in MDD. Basically, there's an initial screening period, about 28 days, in at least in the MDD programs. Uh, patients were randomized in a double-blind phase to outpatient administration for 14 nights or evenings of Zoranolone, and the dose varied with the study. And then there was a controlled follow-up period from day 15 to day 42. The primary endpoint was at the end of active treatment or double-blind treatment, and that was at day 15. In general, the Hamdi total score needed to be moderate to severe at screening in day one, and patients who had active psychosis or had attempted suicide in the current episode or had other serious mood disorders like bipolar illness and or schizoaffective disorder uh, were excluded. These are the data looking at rapid improvement. You saw rapid improvement with Brexanolone um, because it was an IV infusion that was in the first 24 hours. But interestingly enough, with Zoranolone and oral medication, you can see that at day two or, or three, it depended on the study, there was a significant decrease in HAMD-17 total scores. And the same thing was true at day 15 at the primary endpoint, except for the mountain study, which did not meet the primary endpoint, but did show statistical significance at the day three visit, the day eight visit, the day 12 visit, uh, but not at day 15 at the 30 milligram per day dose. And then there's a, a unique study in which it's an open-label safety study in which patients received 30 initially and then were potentially increased to 50 milligrams a day. And they were able to take, over the course of one year, up to five repeat or total treatments with Zoran alone. And outcomes were evaluated. People who did not respond to the initial administration, however, did not continue in the study. These are the data from the Shoreline study. Individuals in the double-blind studies showed efficacy sustained out through day 42. In this case, the important thing is to see how many courses did individuals need to take over the course of a year. For the people dosed at 30 milligrams per day, 43% of them required only the initial treatment, and they stayed well throughout the year-long study. And an additional 25% took only a second course of Zoranolone. So we've got a total of nearly 70% had either one or two treatments. When the dose was increased to 50 milligrams per day, 55% 
of the individuals only had the single initial course of Zoranolone and an additional 25% required a second course. So the need for only one or two treatments with 50 milligrams per day was seen in 80% of the initial responders. In all these studies, patients could be on standard of care antidepressant monotherapy. And that was true in the double blind studies with about 30%. So let's turn now to the CORAL study. This study was attempting to answer the question of if there was benefit to starting an antidepressant, a standard antidepressant, along with Zoranolone at the beginning of treatment. Um, you can see here the parameters of the study. Um, the uh, participants had to have a HAMD-17 score of at least 24, so at least moderate to severe depression. And they were randomized to receiving either uh, zoranolone or placebo, and their, and their doctor could start them on a standard antidepressant uh, treatment, including sertraline, citalopram, citalopram, duloxetine, and desbenlafaxine. And... Um, they had a two-week treatment course of blinded zoranolone or placebo, and then a four-week antidepressant uh, continuous period. And what you can see here is that the results that they got was that there was a quicker um, response in those who received zoranolone as, a, as uh, opposed to placebo. So um, at day three, um, those who received zoranolone had a, an almost nine-point drop in their HAMD score compared to a seven-point drop with placebo. However, these results were not sustained at uh, day 15 um, at the end of the, the treatment. So what this shows is that you can get a quicker response um, to an antidepressant treatment with starting zoranolone at the same time. Um, but over time, that um, response is not more than what the response would be expected to be with the antidepressant treatment. They did note, however, that um, patients with elevated anxiety seem to respond more to the zoranolone. Um, so you can see on the left, um, in patients who had major depression with elevated anxiety, they had a steeper and stronger uh, drop in their HAMD scores with zoranolone as compared to placebo. Whereas on the right, um, patients who only had major depression and did not have elevated anxiety essentially had uh, a similar to placebo response over the course of the study. So this um, approach may be particularly helpful for patients who have both major depression and significant anxiety symptoms. One of the things that's really critical to look at is quality of life data or functional outcomes. And the SF36, which is a commonly used questionnaire to look at quality of life, was used in these studies. It's normally been used in a lot of medical studies, and, it, and that's partly because it has four questions that relate to physical components and four questions that relate to mental components. Looking at the graph on the left, at day 15, which was the primary endpoint, all four of the mental components and two of the four physical components were significantly better with zoranolone versus placebo. Now, these are pooled data across three the three MDD studies and one PPD study. 
But this is pretty dramatic. We often think that functional impairments take much longer to improve. And that wasn't true. We saw early improvements. And one that was particularly critical to patients was vitality. The results at day 42 were even more impressive, where literally all eight domains were significantly better with alone than with placebo. So we might get a quick response, not only in depressive symptoms, but also in improving functional impairments. So Anita, I have not actually used this scale before. Does it um, actually measure effort? Um, because I have a lot of patients who, even though th that they're depressed, will still go to work and try their best to take care of things. Um, and it's a huge effort for them to do that. So none of the scales looking at quality of life really measure effort directly. I think it's critical. I ask my patients about it myself all the time. But the vitality domain on the SF36 is helpful in looking at that. If your vitality is low, you don't have the energy. You are exhausted. You are unable to, to do things, initiate things, make it happen. And with an improvement in vitality, what the patients are saying is, I can do it. I am doing it. And, and it's, it's not requiring effort on my part. I will say that the physical components are interesting as well, though, because sometimes those are aches and pains and things like that that people have with depression may impact on their physical role or their physical functioning, and there's a measure for bodily pain. In general, in these studies, patients who had significant medical comorbidities were not allowed in, and yet you still see improvement even at day 15 in the physical components of this, and they actually improved basically to the population norms for all the physical functioning and also for vitality. Zoranolone is safe and well-tolerated as well. Fewer than 5% of individuals discontinued because of adverse effects in the major depression trials, and about 6.5% of patients in the 50 milligram arm of the Shoreline study discontinued treatment because of an adverse event over a one-year period. This is an extremely low rate when you look at a study that is that long. And the most common adverse events are things like headache, dizziness, somnolence, sedation, uh, nausea, sometimes and diarrhea, and occasionally insomnia. And very few serious adverse events were reported in each trial. The highest number uh, was seen in the Shoreline study because it was a year-long study. So Anita, how do you think these side effects compare uh, to our standard treatments for things like weight gain? So but at least in part because it's only a 14-day course, you don't have the persistent ongoing chronic daily use that might contribute to things like weight gain unless the person is also taking concomitant standard of care antidepressant therapy. I think the same thing is true for sexual dysfunction. We did look at sexual dysfunction in the mountain study using the changes in sexual function questionnaire, and it did not differ from placebo. I think also looking at something when you're considering a year-long therapy, like in Shoreline, things like weight gain is more likely to occur if you were taking a standard antidepressant, 
or if uh, you might potentially have sexual dysfunction that would be persistent or require an antidote to be added or to have discontinuation or switching to something else. And that's really not a factor with Zoranolone because its course is so brief. Or if it's repeated, it really is only going to need to be repeated at most once after the initial response in 70 to 80% of the people, depending on the dose. I think a lot of our patients are going to be attracted uh, to the idea of fewer long-term side effects and, and also not taking a medication on a daily basis. Yeah, I think the convenience factor is also pretty important. I agree. There are some other neuroactive steroid GABA-A receptor positive allosteric modulator medications under development. Prax114 is a GABA-A receptor positive allosteric modulator that is in development for potential treatment of patients with MDD and perimenopausal depression. There are two studies that are ongoing. One is a phase two study with a dose ranging from 10 to 20 to 40 to 60 milligrams, and it includes patients receiving adjunctive treatments to a standard of care antidepressant and an inadequate response to that treatment and was recently expanded to include patients not on standard of care antidepressants and to receive monotherapy alone. And those results are expected in the second half of 2022. The phase 2-3 study, the ARIA study, is a single dose of 40 milligrams with monotherapy treatment of patients with MDD, and those results are expected in the first half of this year. So, Anita, how does Prax-114 uh, work, and how does it differ from a synthetic allopregnanolone agent? So, it is a neuroactive steroid GABA-A receptor-positive allosteric modulator, much like brexanolone and zoranolone. However, it is thought to potentially target preferentially extrasynaptic sites, and that may in fact be associated with longer sustained effects. We'll see. That's really interesting. So it's, it's uh, very different from a benzodiazepine then, which targets the, the intrasynaptic sites. And we'll see how much it impacts on anxiety as well. So let's revisit Sarah's case. She was enrolled in the Zoranolone Mountain study. Her oral medications were continued. Her baseline HAMD-17 score was 31. Her HAMD-17 score at day three after two doses of test product was eight. And at day seven, it was three. Essentially, she was in remission within the first week. At these visits, her mood was euthymic. She was interested in starting nursing school. She was sleeping eight hours and straight through the night. And she noted increased, improved energy to a near normal level. Functional improvements were noted in her relationships, cognitive function, and in completion of tasks, which was pretty critical to her. She denied adverse events except sedation after dosing, which she actually felt was a positive uh, because it was associated with more restful sleep. And she had some headaches initially, but this side effect resolved. She also had some GI effects of softer stool and increased gas, but nothing that was debilitating. She completed the 14-day course of double-blind treatment, 
the double-blind portion of the study, and the follow-up through day 42. The Mountain Study also had a naturalistic follow-up of six months, and she participated in that and continued on the same antidepressant therapy. She remained in remission throughout, out to six months. In that time period, she started nursing school, married her fiancé, moved to a new home, and tolerated back surgery without any signs of relapse. That's amazing. So, Anita, where do you think this area of psychiatry is going to go? Do you think we're going to be using these agents as monotherapy, as adjunctive treatments, both? So, neither Brexanolone or Zoranolone were tested in standard treatment-resistant depressive patients. So, these are patients who may, because of their insurance, be required to try some standard of care antidepressants first. And tolerability may be an issue. I think the other issue is going to be if people need a rapid response to treatment. Are they significantly functionally impaired, like they're going to lose their job? Are they not able to care for their families and children? Are they suicidal? So greater severity of their depression may, in fact, be be important. And any other reason that would really lead you to to need to have a rapid response to treatment. I think it's going to be interesting to see if there are clinical factors um, that make a, a, a patient more or less likely to respond to these agents. Um, you know, our standard antidepressant treatments really only work in about 50% of patients. Um, and we still haven't figured out what clinical factors might uh, give us a clue that a patient may not respond to an SSRI or an SNRI. Um, these certainly seem to have a, a larger um, response rate and remission rate, um, but it's still not 100%. Um, so it will be very interesting to see what science eventually tells us about um, predicting treatment response to these agents. I do think we can trace it back to the potential etiology of the depression because you could have several factors. You could have an inflammatory process. You could have diminished GABA function. You could have problems related to your neuroactive steroids that are going to contribute to particular symptoms, perhaps, and therefore particular people may respond better to, to treatments that target those. It might be particularly effective in patients with elevated anxiety, which is common in patients with depression and is associated with a more prolonged and severe disease course and poor response to monoaminergic antidepressant therapy. Clinically, I have one, one final thought. I think what is exciting about um, this line of uh, research um, and development um, is that um, you can give intermittent treatments and they rapidly respond. I, you know, clinically, it seems to me that when patients have gone for long periods of time without responding to an antidepressant or, or even not being treated so that they've been depressed for a long period of time, it's like their brain is less plastic. And I, I think it will potentially become more urgent that we get patients identified and treated rapidly with these agents that act rapidly. So I think that there's a lot of interesting research questions coming down the pipeline for these agents. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated.
This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AFZ 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sage Therapeutics and Biogen.